The Force of Destiny, I reflect, is perhaps one of Verdi's darkest scores. It's also, of course, one of his greatest scores, but it tells a puzzling story built around a sequence of completely improbable encounters that suggest the mysterious workings of fate, hence the title. It's comic and it's tragic. It's comic with a kind of Friar Tuck figure in the Franciscan father, Melitoni, and it's also an aristocratic tragedy about Don Alvaro, who accidentally throws his pistol on a table and thus kills the father of the woman that he loves, Leonora, and is pursued for the rest of the opera viciously for vengeance by her brother, Don Carlo de Vargas. Then, just to make it more puzzling, it has a low-life heroine, Prezio Silla, who in tonight's production by the Spanish director Calixto Bieto seems to lead the cast of soldiers, muleteers, peasants and barflies who swarm through the opera, which Bieto has set during the Spanish Civil War, 1936 to 1939. So, we can presume that this is partly a story of social class, but it's also a story of race, since it seems that Don Alvaro is from Latin America, a half-Native American and half-Spanish, and his rival insultingly calls him a half-breed native. This perhaps was the reason that Leonora's father refused to give his consent to their uh, wedding marriage. Then, to compound the problems posed by this opera, there are two separate, discrete versions. The usual version that was effectively created for La Scala in Milan in 1869, which has the celebrated overture, which we've all longed to stand up and sing along with in the concert hall, I suspect, at some times in our lives. And then there's the original version, commissioned by the Imperial Opera in St. Petersburg, and first performed there on the 22nd of November, 1862. It was not the opera that Verdi had originally wanted to write for his Russian audience. That was to have been an opera based on Victor Hugo's play, Oui Bla. But the play was political dynamite, and the Russian censor, censor stamped his blue pencil, and the project was withdrawn. So Verdi turned to Don Alvaro, a play by the romantic Spanish writer Ángel Pérez de Saavedra, The Duke of Rivas. And he also borrowed a scene from his favourite German dramatist from Friedrich Schiller's Wallenstein's Tote. It's clear that Verdi was trying to do something new with this work. He described the force of destiny to his French publisher, Léon Escudier, as powerful, singular and truly vast. I like it very much, and I don't know if the public will find it as I do, but it is certainly something quite out of the ordinary. The first night in St. Petersburg in 1862 earned the composer a great deal of applause and, it should be added, the Order of St. Stanislas. But there were brickbats from the local Russian-speaking critics and, indeed, hostile demonstrations at the third performance. And I'm afraid things weren't much better in Madrid when the opera in its original form was given its Spanish premiere within months. As for Verdi, it was the violent deaths of the three protagonists, Leonora, Don Alvaro and Don Carlo, all on stage that worried him most. It took the composer and a new librettist, Antonio Ghislanzoni, seven years to hammer out a solution and to create the force of destiny that most of us know, given its first performance in Milan at La Scala in 1869. It's a history that is perhaps almost as complicated as the plot of the opera itself.
Well, we're joined by a quartet of guests this evening to try to unravel this masterpiece. Laura Jane Stanfield, who is Assistant Costume Supervisor for English National Opera on this production. The soprano Catherine Broderick, who's covering the role of Donna Leonora de Vargas, and Richard Pearson, who is a member of the music staff here at English National Opera, are going to perform an aria from the opera and talk about both the role and something about the music we're going to hear. But our first guest for this new production by Calixto, Calixto Biotto is Professor Maria Delgado, who has just joined Royal Central School of Speech and Drama as their Director of Research. Will you please welcome Maria Delgado? Maria, as I've said, the play with a libretto by Piave, one of Verdi's trusted early librettists, is based on the Spanish romantic play Don Alvaro by the third Duke of Rivas. Do we know whether tonight's director is particularly attached to this play? He loves this play. He studied this play at school. I mean, to, to think about this play in the Spanish context, you have to compare it to Shakespeare or to Bernard Shaw. This is on the school curriculum. He grew up with it. I think he first read it when he was 11 or 12 years old. It's also one of the highlights of Spanish romanticist drama. Spain had a kind of flourishing romanticist movement, and this was the play that kind of triggered it all and set it off. It was written by the Duke of Rivas when he was in exile. The Duke of Rivas is a fascinating character in and of himself. I'm surprised Verdi's and actually put him in the opera. Um, he was an extraordinary figure. He was a politician, he was a poet, and he was a playwright. Um, and he wrote the play. He fell out with the conservative government of Fernando VII in Spain, and he wrote the play when he was in exile. And it was only produced for the first time in 1835 when he came back to Spain. Fernando VII died in 30, 1833, if I remember rightly. And his wife succeeded him as regent. His daughter was far too young to ascend to the throne. And... Um, he presented the play and it created a huge uproar. Uh, people were talking about it the whole time, partly because of the kind of, uh, the, the, the lyrical sweep of romanticism, this mixture of prose and poetry that he has, all these extraordinary characters driven by passions. Also, uh, the Spanish theatre was used to heroes having a tragic flaw. And there's no tragic flaw here. There's a whole set of circumstances that suggest that the world is a terribly chaotic place. Um, the Duke of Rivers carried on writing, um, and he then was forced into exile because he was too liberal for the... Um, he, sorry, he was too conservative. He was liberal in his youth. Then he became very conservative. He was thrown out of Spain for being too conservative under the new liberal regime. Um, and then he fell back into favour, and he was ambassador in... Paris and Naples, so an incredibly colourful life. But this is his masterwork, and as I said, it's a, it's a fundamental reference point for, um, uh, for Spanish culture. You can't understand so much of what came afterwards without this play. I can see that if it's on the school curriculum, there would be a sense of, of anxiety amongst most of us. But I wonder also, does it mean something else to Spaniards, it's something in the way that Shakespeare is reconstructed for so many of us as the national poet? that he says things about us as a people. Is this also true of this writer and indeed this play? It says something about being Spanish. Yeah, I think it says something about fanaticism. I think it says something about religion. It's a, it's a play about revenge. 
It's about family revenge. And I think this is one of the ways that Calixto has thought about it as, uh, in terms of setting it within the Spanish Civil War, which, of course, was the key kind of conflict in Spain in the 20th century. Spain did not participate in World's, World War I or World War II. And that fratricidal conflict, it remains with Spain. It still haunts Spain. It, it pitted brother against brother, sister against cousin. It was an appalling conflict. Over 500,000 people died. Um, there is still thought to be about 100,000 people in mass graves around the country. So it, it's a very live issue in Spain. And, and Calixto comes back, I think. He comes back to the Civil War in a lot of his productions, comes back to the Franco era. So here, and I think it's very interesting, we know an awful lot about the Republican movement in the Civil War. So many writers wrote about it. He chooses to position the lead characters within the nationalist movement, the rebels, the Francoist troops. And I think it's, it's a really interesting decision on, on his part. So I think, I think in many ways he's come to this piece because of the Spanish, that he often comes back to operas. He loves operas that are written by non-Spanish composers, but set in, in, in Spain, of course, Don Giovanni, mm. Carmen. They're about how uh, the idea of Spanishness is constructed in the foreign imaginary. And I think Forza del Destino has a, has a role in that, in the way that Carmen has and, and Don Giovanni does. But what's so interesting, and we've seen, of course, the Carmen here uh, uh, and, and Giovanni, What's so interesting is the way, not perhaps that Spaniards see Spain, it's the image of Spain that's been constructed by those who are not Spanish. We're offered the, I mean, in Carmen, for example, um, it's that kind of late Franco period in which uh, tourism, sun, sea, and sangria, to use the cliche, have become everybody's image of Spain. It isn't the Spain that a Spaniard would recognise in that period. I think, I think for Calixto, he grew up um, under Franco. I mean, Franco died when he was coming into his teenage years. And he grew up uh, in Barcelona, the coastline around Barcelona, seeing how tourism was used to market Spain. Franco wanted to sell an image of Spain as a happy-go-lucky country, not a dictatorship, uh, but a happy-go-lucky country where people had a good time, you could frolic on the beach, it was full of senoritas, full of matadors, a little bit exotic, very, very passionate, very different. Um, and, and his head of tourism marketed Spain with the campaign, Spain is different. Are you going to get adventure? You're going to get all the things you don't get in drab northern Europe. And I think one of the things about Calixto is he's looking to the ways in which that iconography was constructed, the ways in which Franco used that. And if you look at any of the tourism posters that were used to promote Spain in the 60s, they all use this iconography that he returns to in, in his Carmen. A lot of Calixto's productions are about the ways in which we think about constructions of nationhood, the ways in which governments... Um, construct ideas of the nation state that they use through tourism and the ways in which culture is used to sell a particular idea of Spanishness. And of course, the force of destiny, Don Alvaro and the force of destiny as a play played into the, to, to those ideas because it's a play that's also about the passionateness of the Spanish. You know, they are swept away by, by, by the irrational. They can't control it. I also think it's a really interesting piece because it's about the conflicts in 19th century Spain. Spain, of course, at, at the time in which the play was written, at the time in which Verdi's opera was presented, was undergoing a series of conflicts with, with its colonies in the Americas. And, of course, it lost its final colony in 1898. The character of Don Alvaro is South American. 
he's of, of, of mixed race. And and it's about the new influence that those figures were having within Spain because of the export of products from the Americas. They were coming to Spain, they were working in Spain, but they were resented as other. So it's also an incredibly political work in, in, in that sense because it's about how the other was viewed and how it was viewed with suspicion. We'll accept your money, but we don't want to accept you into the bosom of our but families. We also, we also cannot but read that from our perspective now at the beginning of the 21st century as a, 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 a piece about racism and racial attitudes and the use deliberately, I suspect, in the translation that we shall see tonight. And incidentally, everybody, you can see, as always on the screen, images from tonight's production. The use of the word half-breed, a yeah. profoundly offensive phrase, is designed to remind us that the piece is about, uh, uh, not only in the case of, 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 of the, the revenger and uh, contempt for his rival, but it's about an attitude towards what is also Spanish. Yes. Absolutely. And, and, you know, there's been, there was a, a, a long history of migration from uh, Latin America into Spain, but there's also a long history of how badly those migrants were, were treated within uh, Spain in the 19th century and, 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 and into the 20th century. And we see it today with the, uh, uh, through the mass migration that came in the 70s, 80s, 90s and into the 90s before, before the recession hit Spain in 2008. That mass migration from Latin America and the racism that was suffered. So I think Calixto sees it as a particular pertinent piece because it, 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 it talks of Spanish history. I think in a very... Uh, discreet way. It's not overbearing, but it's a, a way of thinking about identity formation and the legacy of colonialism in, in Spain. It's, it's not a fashionable play. I mean, we think about it as it's a canonical work in Spain, but it's actually not staged that often. Zoria's version of the Don Juan myth, uh, uh, Don Juan Tenorio, is staged far, far more often. I think this is a more interesting work. One, one last question. How closely should we track the Spanish Civil War through its production. You've reminded us that what's particularly interesting is that the two heroes, if we can call them that, are both fighting on the side we know less about and which, from a liberal perspective, uh, the rest of Europe has taken a, a, a dim view of. But should we, for example, see uh, Preciosilla as being a version of La Passionaria, the great kind of leader of the, uh, from the far left, the communist left, who, uh, resident in Barcelona, uh, rallied you know, vast numbers of people to fight for the cause of the Republic? Yes, of course, although uh, here she's on the other side, she's on the nationalist side. I think that La Passionaria is obviously a visual reference point for, for this character. And there are moments in the production, I'm not going to go into detail for those of you that haven't seen it, I don't want to spoil it, but there are moments where he does reference instances of things that did happen during the Spanish Civil War, some of them incredibly disturbing. Uh, we, we forget that an awful lot of civilians, you know, uh, two, over 200,000 civilians, this is not soldiers, civilians, were killed during the Civil War. Uh, and it's thought that about 45,000 were killed afterwards um, in, in the, the recriminations carried out by the Franco regime. So I think that it's, you know, it's an era that a lot of the violence that took place was rewritten. It was covered over by the Franco regime in their official records of what had happened. I think in recent years, you're seeing a rewriting of that history, and that's taking many different forms. And one of the forms in which it, it, it's being taken is in rewriting the role of women during the Spanish Civil War. It was seen as such a male conflict. And I think Calixto's 
positioning of this character is very much about thinking about how we recognise the role of women, not just as nurturers, not just as kind of mother figures, not just as people keeping the home fires burning, but also as battle commanders, as people who, as, 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 as agents, as, as leaders. And I think that production is part of this kind of uh, consideration of the Spanish Civil War in a more nuanced historical manner. Professor Maria Delgado, thank you very much. And please, please stay with us. Um, ladies and gentlemen, we're joined now by the soprano Catherine Broderick, who is covering the role of Leonora, and by Richard Pearson, who is a member of the music staff here at Eno. Will you please welcome them both? <laughs> Catherine, the unkind and cruel thing is you have to speak for your supper before you're allowed to sing for it at yeah. pre-performance. So, so let's talk a little, about, a little bit about Donna Leonora de Vargas. Who do you think she is? How do you see this character? Well, we can, we can look at her through her, her status as the daughter of, of a, of a Marchese. But really, I think she's a, a young woman, a, almost a girl, who's just trying to do her best. Her father... Um, has not allowed her to marry the man that she loves. And, and very simply, she's, she's tried to do what her father is telling her to do. But she's also trying to do what the man she loves is telling her to do, and she's torn. And the opera opens halfway through her story. This, is, this has already happened, and it, and it opens um, and at, at the point where her father has taken her away from her lover. And... Um, He's taken her away to, to the countryside and, and expects, he expects everything to go back to how things were before and she is still being tortured by the situation. Why do you think she feels so appallingly guilty for the whole of this opera about the accident that has deprived her of her father? I mean, at one level, and certainly perhaps in the 21st century, though that's an unfair judgment, but certainly a woman could actually see this as a merciful release. She is now free to marry the man that she's loved um, she's now free to undo the tyranny that her father has imposed upon her, and yet she's eternally guilty. I think it's as simple as she loved her father. I think she's a good girl, and she tries to do she tries to do her best. I think that's why she feels torn, and um, and that's why she feels guilty. I don't I don't think there's any 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 big secret. I think she's just a good girl. Does that also explain a moment, which I don't think we're giving anything away, in which, at the beginning of the opera, she's all ready to, to disappear in the middle of the night, climb down the, the, the ladder against the window yeah. in her bedroom and escape with Don Alvaro, but she can't, in the end, make up her mind to do that. No. Uh, is there a kind of conflict in her mind between the duty and love she owes her father and the love and future duty she may own a husband? Well, I think, I think the word duty is, is, is the apt one. I think Verdi was... Um, most of his heroines are, are torn between love and honour and duty, and duty is the one that, that he's interested in, and I think that's, that's, that's what he brings out in her, definitely. And why should she choose, and let's not be too specific for those who don't know the story, why should she choose to withdraw from the world in the most extraordinary way? Um, well, again, it's the guilt, maybe the Catholic guilt. The, the church plays a massive part in this, um, in this opera, and... Um, especially updated. Um, but part of it's safety as well. Her brother has sworn revenge. Her brother has sworn to kill her and Alvaro. And part of it's safety to retreat to somewhere where she knows she can't be found. And also, it's, it's like the self-flagellation. You know, she's, 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 um, she's taking out um, the crime on herself. 
what are the vocal challenges of this long roll? Well, you know, it's, I, I, this is actually the first Verdi I've... Um, I've sung the Requiem before, but I've never, never sung a, a, any of the operas, and I'd always thought of myself as, a, as more on the German side of things, Wagner and Strauss, which I've done quite a bit of. But um, it's beautifully written for the voice. It's much lower than, um, than a lot of the, of the Verdi heroine roles. Um, so, so the soprano that sings, it must have um, a really solid middle and lower range. And it... But the high notes are dramatic, so it needs to be to be a soprano that that has that has bred through through the through the range and. But it's beautifully written, I have to say, and I've really enjoyed learning it. And it was a bit of a, an experiment for me, and I've um, I've loved it. So I'll definitely be adding it to my <laughs> auditionarius. <laughs> and the other thing is, very at the end, um, leaves what for the audience is the best of your role, the final yeah. aria. But for you, it's a bit like kind of climbing Mount Everest, perhaps yeah. in snowshoes. I mean, Especially in this in this production, you have uh, the first two acts where she sings nonstop almost, and then there's an interval and then the third act and then another interval so I think I think she has uh, about an hour and a half <laughs> break and then she has to come on and sing this ridiculously difficult aria <laughs> what are you and Richard going to do for us it's this the, the aria that you're talking about oh, <laughs> the parche well parche, fantastic. Parche. fantastic thank you pleasure <coughs>
Thank you. Thank you. Um, Richard, was this a score that you knew before you started working on this production? Oh, yes, I've worked on it once before, about 20 years ago at Scottish Opera, but it's been wonderful to come back to it again. It's a wonderful score. Surprises when you open the score again? Not really. I mean, I, I got to know it so well those 20 years ago that it was, yeah, it was just a joy to come back to it, I must say. Yes. As, as I indicated at the very beginning, there are two versions of this opera. There is 1862, written for St. Petersburg, and there is the one that normally we hear, which is 1869, uh, tweaked for La Scala. What are we actually going to hear tonight? On the whole, we're hearing the 1869, sort of, so to speak, standard version, but we're doing the prelude from the 1862, the premiere version. Um, uh, for the premiere in St. Petersburg, Verdi composed a fairly short prelude, which introduces a few of the themes from the opera, and then after a brief loud climax, the music dies down and it finishes quietly. The 1869 uh, overture is much expanded. It's a wonderful showpiece for the orchestra. 
and it's often performed out of context as a, as a concert piece. It has a huge thrilling climax and, and it positively demands applause. Um, now I think both Mark Wigglesworth, who's conducting, and Calixto um, wanted very much um, for things to continue seamlessly from the prelude into the beginning of the drama, as you'll see with the production. Um, the curtain is up right from the beginning, and with its quiet finish, it's possible for, to go straight from the end of the prelude into the beginning of Act One. In, in both versions, the shorter St. Petersburg prelude that quietly will lead us into the action, or the extraordinary 1869 one, there are these themes that will recur throughout the opera. Are these associated with the characters or with ideas in the piece? How do, how do you see them working? Um, I think a, a bit of both, actually. Um, Verdi does use re themes they, they recur, but fairly sparingly, and he never develops them symphonically, so they're always instantly recognisable, um, and so dramatically that much more telling. To give a, a couple of examples, um, the very opening of the prelude is a figure like this on the brass. <laughs> so-called fate motif. And it's got um, an absolutely brutal, sort of fateful inexorability about it, which sets the atmosphere for the, for the whole drama. Um, it re reappears halfway through the prelude, once at the beginning of Act Two, but also rather chillingly, we hear it very quietly, just on flutes and clarinets, at the beginning of Act One, as if to say, however much in the background, fate is always there. Um, it's then followed by the motif which you heard in, in the RO we've just done. And in the way that it keeps repeat, coming back to that same E, back to that E, it feels like an elaboration of that brutal opening motif. So for me, it's, it's part of the fate motif as well. And we hear the music in that form a few times. It, to me, it suggests someone a, a desperate attempt to flee, presumably from, from fate itself. Um, we hear it at, at that point in the prelude. We hear it when Leonora and her lover, Alvaro, are about to elope, but they're interrupted by her father. And soon after that, Alvaro accidentally kills her father. We hear it at the beginning of... Um, Leonora's Act Two aria, when she's basically when she's on the run and about to seek refuge in a monastery, and at the beginning of the aria that you've just just, just heard, so it becomes associated with Leonora's attempt to flee from fate itself, from the events of Act One, um, and um, but there's um, a totally contrasted theme which we hear in the prelude in both versions. And we hear this again um, halfway through Leonora's Act Two aria, um, as she sings the word, do not abandon me, almighty God, do not forsake me. And it's immediately answered by an absolutely beautiful offstage chorus of monks, as if her prayer has been answered, as if she has found refuge. Um, however, in the prelude, Verdi brilliantly juxtaposes it with a fragment of that fateful theme. So it goes like this. Mm -hmm. 
So even though, it's, it's as if to suggest even though she might have found refuge, that fate is never far away. You just can't escape it. Um, now there's one other theme I want to mention from the prelude, it's this one. Very famous tune. And I often feel that the composer of the theme from The Godfather owes a bit of a debt <laughs> to Verdi, if you remember. <laughs> Something like that. Um, and of course, that theme weaves its way through the film as a similarly fateful sort of thing. And I think it's a bit of a, an homage to, to Verdi and to this particular instance. Anyway, back to Verdi. Um, this theme, which has it as its counter melody. Fateful theme. Now, this only re this famous theme only reappears one more time in the piece. Much later on in Act Four, um, it's doing during a duet between Leonor's lover Alvaro and her brother Don Carlo, who is hell bent on revenge for his father's death. And in this duet, um, Carlo is endlessly trying to goad Alvaro into fighting a duel so that honor is served. Um, Alvaro ex explains that he's renounced violence, he's no longer a soldier, he's become a monk and refuses to fight. And eventually, Carlo calls him a coward and Alvaro almost loses it. But then he gathers himself as we hear that theme and then he sings to that theme, angry words will never hurt me, do not waste your words on hate, my brother, please forgive. But to my mind, the re reappearance of that theme, which we've la last heard in, in the fate-laden prelude, it, it has a sort of awful inevitability about it. You know that it's fate again in some way. And sure enough, Carlo succeeds in goading Alvaro into a, into a duel, and Alvaro fatally stabs Carlo, um, and ultimately leading to Leonora's death as well. So all three members of the uh, Calatrava family have died. Um, it just seems you can't escape fate. <laughs> Richard, thank you very much indeed. A sorry tale, thank you very <laughs> much indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, um, would you welcome the last of our guests this evening? It's Laura Jane Stanfield, who is Assistant Costume Supervisor for English National for this production. <laughs> A big question to begin, Laura Jane. What exactly do you do? What is your job <laughs> under that? large title? Um, <laughs> um, basically, my job is to help the supervisor and the supervising team to actually make the costumes happen. So, realise the designs from Ingo Quirdler's designs. And, and what's the process? There you are. Someone has told you you'll be doing Forza's El Destino um, as the penultimate opera of the first part of the season. What happens to you? To me? Um, well, very it would very much start with the process of the designer talking to the director and then deciding how they want to pitch the production. And uh, this one was very much led by Calixto. And, and it was, I think it was a very personal piece for him. Um, he talked a lot in the model box showing about his grandmother and how the war had affected her and how he wanted to portray the nationalist side because he felt that that voice had never sort of been looked at on stage before. I'm just going to so, pull the microphone oh, a little bit towards you. There we <laughs> Thank go. Thank you. Um, so it was very important for him that the costumes were very authentic and believable and that we didn't... There was a constant phrase we used throughout the process was, we don't want Downton Abbey. <laughs> we, don't, we don't want beauty as such. We want to see realism. We want to believe that these aren't costumes, that they are clothing that people wear and are inhabited by real people. Mm. 
And so do you actually start with drawings, two-dimensional drawings? It depends, again, on the process. Calixto works in quite an organic way, which means that he's quite playful in rehearsal. He likes to not be tied down too much initially. So we have a broad idea of what we're doing, but we like to be able to change it or add something to it so that the whole thing isn't too contained too quickly. Um, so quite often we'd get a, a four o'clock request for something the following day and be frantically rushing through the wardrobe trying to find something that will represent that. So. And, and presumably there's quite a tight budget that you've got to do all this in yes. as well. Yeah. And, and is there a tension often between what the director and the designer have in their minds and wish to see on stage and what you as guardian of the, of the gold have to do? <laughs> I think that's the case wherever you work. I'm a freelancer, so I work at other places too. That's always an issue. Um, I think part of our job as supervisors is to, um, to work within a budget, to think creatively, to use the resources we have. Um, we do have a resource at ENO of, of shows that are now classed as dead, mm. so we pulled from previous shows. We can dye things, we can adapt them, we can, we can do all sorts of magical things. So it's our job to sort of give them as much as we can of what they want, but by being creatively budget-wise as well as mm. aesthetically. So, so give me an idea, perhaps without being too specific, <laughs> what shows have you ransacked <laughs> that are dead? That, that, those are the long, oh. you know, memories might see. Um, well, one of them was one of my first shows at ENO, which has just recently been um, sadly said goodbye to, which was Cavalieri Rusticana. Mm. But it was lovely for me because I got to see things that I'd originally found in vintage shops or sourced the material for having a new life and it's now going on to the Met. So, yeah, that's quite nice, actually. <laughs> and, 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 and if you had to put a kind of percentage on it, how much is new and how much is imagination and invention and, 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 and the kind of things that you all do in the costume department? And how much is brand new? Um, I think it's all brand new, really, in, in terms of... Nothing ever goes just... We don't ever just sort of pull something in it and it just is what it was before. Everything has a new twist put on it. We've, we've, we're very lucky. We have a dye department. We have an excellent millinery department. And they're all very creative and have good ideas as well. So it, it all evolves. And, and yes, Ingo was leading the whole process, but I think he, he was lucky to have a lot of creative inputs as well. But one of the things that we see very early on in the opera is indeed... Uh, the Marchesa uh, sitting down to dinner with Leonora in, in an extraordinary impressive army uniform, <laughs> uh, gl glittering with braid and, yeah. and epaulettes and, 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 and medals. Now, is that all real or is that kind of smoke and mirrors? Have you? It's, um, it's, it's based in reality. Um, initially, Ingo and Sarah, who was the supervisor, went to Madrid and Barcelona and did quite a lot of research out there. Um, it's very difficult, apparently, to find authentic nationalist costume um, because it was destroyed because they are ashamed of it. It's, it's a part of Spain that you know people want to forget. Um, but we did manage to find some quite authentic originals. And so even though ours have been made for this production, they are based very much on the authentic fabrics, the structure, everything that would have been in place at the time. That, that in a sense, is the aristocratic, tragic part of the drama. What about this extraordinary teeming group of people who seem to sweep in and out of the stage in inns, pubs, streets, and so forth? <laughs> Did you deliberately dress them to look as if they belonged to a different part of society? I think the idea with that, initially, we were very much going to 
play them as the Republicans, which would be the opposition to the nationalists. But actually, as it progressed, I think it was something that Calixto felt quite strongly about as well, was he did want them to actually feel like they were from the same, they were on the same team almost, and only a few people, which are very obvious in the production, are from the Republican background. Mm. So we did try to make costumes that initially we thought would be quite broken down and quite peasant-like, and actually take them up a notch in terms of class and, and how much wealth people would have actually had. There's a process of, of making costumes in this kind of way, organic, one might describe <laughs> it. How long does it go on? Is there a moment when you finally have to say, stop, we can't go on doing this? <laughs> and, or are you at the dress yeah. rehearsal, all of you, in the wings, thinking, what do we do next? We, d we did wonder whether that, this was going to do that because it was constantly changing. But I think we did a lot of playing in the rehearsal stage before we actually got to the stage at the Coliseum, um, which is quite unusual, actually. That was quite fun for us to do and quite challenging at times. Um, so Calixto played out a lot of his ideas quite early on, along with Ingo and along with us supporting mm. him. And I think that meant that when we did get to stage, he was quite happy with what he got in front of him. There was no surprises to him. Mm. So, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, we have a little time, ladies and gentlemen. If you would like to ask questions of any of our guests, there is the famous roving microphone about to rove. Put up your hand, catch my eye, and I will ask you to... Yes, in the second row. Terribly simple question. When, what date was the play? What date was the play? It was first produced in 1835. Do we have another question? Yes, in the middle row. Um, what guided you for Leonora's costume, particularly at the end, the black... Sorry, I don't want to give things away, but <laughs> the rather strappy... <laughs> revealing dress, which didn't seem to time with her having been a hermit. I think it was, um, this very much came from Calixto and Ingo, and it was a process that went through the rehearsal process until they reached how, the conclusion that they did. Um, I think the idea was that she should look vulnerable, that she was, I mean, you see the stripping of her dress, and in front of a stage full of men, it, it's incredibly revealing and sort of adds to her um, her sort of, I don't know what the word would be, but it, yeah, you just, you see a very vulnerable woman up there and I think that's the idea of that costume. And that, that applies to the last scene as well, doesn't yeah. it? Right, okay. Yeah. Another question, ladies and gentlemen. We've time certainly for one more. Anybody? I think you've Question done. Can I just say, therefore, uh, an enormous thank you to our four guests who've been with us. But before that, if you look underneath your bottoms, you will see a sheet of paper which gives the details of the remainder of the pre-performance talks, um, one Mikado before Christmas and the ones for next year too, and we shall hope to welcome you. And if you'd like a drink when we've finished, please make your way down to the bar in the dress circle, which will be open. Dress circle. In the meantime, thank you all of you for sharing your thoughts with us. Thank, thank you. Thank you.